0: You know, um, today we come to the second of four major miracles recorded here in these couple chapters of Jesus, Uh, miracles that were set out to demonstrate Jesus' superior power over all things. And last week we saw that Jesus had the power over nature, uh, and it was demonstrated as he calmed a violent storm that was really seeking and threatening the lives of his disciples. And today we're going to see that Jesus also, in a very similar way, has power, absolute power over human nature as we see that Jesus comes to calm a violent storm that's raging in the heart of a demon-possessed man. Now verse 1 really sets, really sets the context of our story this morning. It says, and they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And so what we know from verse 1 is that we really uh, don't know the exact time that this took place. We know that Jesus and his disciples had gotten into a boat later in the evening and began to travel across. And, and uh, we don't know if now they're arriving and coming up on shore and these events are happening that night or if they're happen, happening the next day. So we don't know the exact time. And we really don't know the exact place. When he refers here to the country of the Gerasenes, we assume that he is speaking to the general area or region uh, there of an ancient city uh, by the name of Gerasa. Uh, But there's one slight problem. Uh, The city is on the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee, but it's about 30 miles inland. So we know that these events couldn't have happened right there in that city. So how can we explain that? Well... Um, uh, we would explain it and the fact that the author, he knows his audience and he knows what cities they know and which ones they don't. And so as he's writing, he's letting them know that this took place close to kind of around the city of Greisa over there in that region. And he knows that his audience would probably be familiar with that. It would be a little bit like this when, when I travel or go speak somewhere else or on vacation, somebody will say, you know, you're chatting and they say, well, where are you guys from? You know the feeling, right? And you're like, well, we're from Yulee. Well, where's Yulee? Yulee, Florida. And they sit there and they go, where in the world is Yulee, Florida? And you go, Jacksonville. Do you know where Jacksonville is, right? And they sit there and they say, yeah, we know where Jacksonville is. And, well, we're from Jacksonville. That's that's where we're from. and And the reason is because... Folks don't know where Yuli is. They know where this is. And so something probably very similar is happening here in Mark's language. And so he talks. We don't know the exact time. We don't know uh, really the exact place. Uh, we do believe that it's most likely a little bit north of there. There's a place that really fits this description. If you go there today on the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee, there's a place where, where really there's a bunch of hills and a bunch of jagged rocks and cliffs that kind of work their way down. And if you go there about, uh, about the third century, they built this nice church on there kind of commemorating that that's the place where this event happened. But we can't be absolutely sure. But Even though we don't know the exact time or the exact place, uh, we do know the exact happenings. Now let me explain what I mean by that. You know something, one characteristic about Mark is Mark is usually very concise in everything that he says. Very concise, that's why the gospel is so much smaller than everyone else. And so uh, usually when he speaks of something, he's just directly to the point and he moves right on. But here in this case, he's a little bit different. You can see that he uses uh, some 20 verses to be able to describe this particular event. Now that's significant because it's more, and he gives more detail and spends more time unpacking this story than does Matthew or Luke. And the reason is, is because the real meaning and the real illustration of Jesus' power are in the details of this story particular story. And so what we want to do is we want to unpack it. We want to kind of walk through this narrative. And what we want to see is we want to pray and rely on Jesus to give us a true picture of Jesus' power over human nature. So we're going to begin by looking at verse 2, beginning reading verse 2. And this is the first thing we want to see in the Word of God. We want to see the destructive power of sin. The destructive power of sin, or you could also say the destructive power of of satan they go hand in hand obviously in verse 2 the bible says and when jesus had stepped out of the boat immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit he lived among the tombs and no one could could bind him anymore not even with a chain for he had often been bound with shackles and chains but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces and no one had the strength to subdue him Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and he was cutting himself with stones. Now, what Mark does here is he gives us a living, breathing illustration of the wretched destruction of sin in Satan and the life of a person. And so so what we see is that this man, he's possessed by demons And he's constantly being harassed. He's constantly being troubled and tormented by these demons. And now he's become trouble himself. In the uh, the community in which he's lived, he's become a great nuisance, even to the point that now he's really threatening the physical well-being of those that he loves and those who are in this community. So, of course, we believe anybody who might have loved this man, they're going to try to help him. They're going to try to do all they can, take him to counseling, take him to go see a pastor, take him to wherever they can get help. But really, everything is for naught. They can't help this guy. He's be beyond helping. And so all they knew to do is basically institutionalize him. And so they take chains and they take shackles and they shackle him in uh, primarily so that he doesn't injure himself or injure anybody else. But the Bible says that nobody was able to subdue him because of, he was possessed by these demons. He had such supernatural power that he would just break the chains and shatter them into little bitty pieces. Nobody could subdue him. The word subdue there in the Greek is used pre- precisely to talk about really to be able to um, subdue an animal. So what Mark is saying is this man is far more animal than he is man. And so we find that either from his own choosing or from him being forced out his community pushes him to, an, uh, to a desolate area. He's living out amongst some caves and some rugged cliffs and he's living out there among tombs of all things where, where, they, where they have dead bodies and the stench of death is everywhere and he's running around naked, the Bible says. And he says that he's, he's taking rocks and he's literally taking them and gouging them into his skin and into his body for what purpose? Most likely to try to end his unbearable existence, to, to try to take his own life is why he's probably doing these things. And the Bible says that during the day and at night, he just bellows out this blood-curdling scream that if you were to hear it, it'd make your own blood kind of turn and turn cold. This is a horrible scene. And unfortunately, what it is, is a picture of what Satan would love to do to every single one of us, if he could. John chapter, John chapter 10, verse 10 says this, that Satan has come to steal to kill and to destroy to destroy who destroy you and destroy me and destroy everybody who has ever been born why well have you ever asked yourself why is that i mean what what does satan have against us what in the world did we ever do to him right I mean, why is he always badgering us? Why does he want to steal, kill, and destroy? Why does he want to destroy you and I? Well, I'll tell you, it's not really your fault, really. It's it's really God's fault, really. It's problems with God. God loves you, and therefore everything that God loves, Satan hates. Why? Because his problem is really with God. And the really... The real bottom line reason that he hates you and I is simply because you were created and I was created, and all men and women and children were created in the image of God. Which means that you and I have certain attributes and characteristics that when God created us, he infused some of his likeness into you and I. There are some ways that we're not like God. We're not omnipresent. It would be nice if we were but we're not. We can only be at one place at one time. Of course, our minds can be somewhere else, but that doesn't count, right? And so, but in some ways, we are exactly like Jesus or or like God in the fact that we can extend mercy, we can extend grace, we can extend patience. Those things are unique to a human being that's been created in the image of God. And so Satan hates God, and now that we reflect what God is all about and reflect his glory and his goodness and his patience and his mercy... He wants to snuff out that image. He wants to do anything he possibly can to diminish that image in you and I. And the way he does that is he seeks to make us like animals. Now, folks, you know as well as I do that Satan's influence is felt heavily in the world and the society in which we live. Do we not? Are we convinced of that? We see his nasty, stinking fingerprints everywhere. And we especially see this idea, this stinking philosophy of his, that he wants to cloud any distinction between a man and an animal. We see that in society. We see it in philosophies like of those who are um, those extreme environmentalists. Now, not all environmentalists. If you're an environmentalist and you love the environment, that's wonderful. I love the environment too. If you want to hug a tree, hug a tree. Uh, You know, whatever, pet a fish, do whatever. I'm not against any of that, Okay. But there is extreme environmentalism that really is being influenced by none other than Satan himself. And you say, well, how does that work? Well, what they do is they demean the value of man and exalt the value of animals. They say, really, a life for a life. Uh, The life of a man is no more valuable than the life of a baboon. Uh, It's basically the same. Or a toad. It are, is, isn't that comforting that you're worth a toad, right? A life for a life, you kill a toad, then your life should be taken. And, and, and don't take my word for it. Take, uh, take the words from one of the co-founders of PETA. They said there's no rational basis for saying that a human being has special rights. A rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. They're all animals. There is no difference between them in worth or in value. And so this is where we get this whole thing where people are sitting there and they're saying, listen, we really need to promote abortion. We need to kill children because if we keep letting this, these people grow, then, then they're going to harm the trees. They're going to harm the trees and they're going to harm the fish and they're going to harm the mountains and we can't let them do that. So what are they doing? It's the influence of Satan. He's, he's diminishing and clouding the distinction between the value of man and the value of created things. And so, what we find as well is we find it not only environmentalists, but we find it in the evolutionists. We see it there, right? Everything is is, is evolving. You know everything is getting better. It seems like everything is is, is, is becoming more wise. Uh, you know we are nothing more than evolved animals, evolved monkeys. Uh, you can go to you can go to the zoo and you could sit there and, and you could sit there and go, hey, you know we need to treat them with respect because that might be you know a long lost relative there. And so what they say ultimately is this: they say, listen. Um, um, you might not be a monkey's uncle, but all of us have uncles who were monkeys, right? And so that's kind of their, their, their point. And again, it's an attempt to blur the lines between humans and animals. It's the handiwork of Satan. We see it in hedonism. And hedonism basically proposes this particular philosophy. It's a school of thought that suggests that pleasure is only intrinsically good. That, listen, that we're nothing more than a mass of glandular sensations, that's what we are. Did you know that's what you are? That's, that's it. Just a mass of glandular sensations. And what he ultimately says is this. He says, you have impulses. And the way to be happy is not to, to keep yourself from acting on those impulses, but to give in to those impulses. To live and let live. It. Man, if it feels good, just do it. That's what the animals do. And you're just nothing more than an animal. You see that? But this is completely different than the, what the Bible says about us clearly different than how the Bible pictures mankind. The Bible says in Genesis 2, verse 7, and chapter 2 and 21 through 23, it teaches us that we are a special creation of God. We didn't evolve from anything. He says that when he was creating man, what did he do? He bent down, he took the dust, he formed it, and he breathed life into man. And then the creation of woman, a few verses later, he puts man into a deep sleep, he takes his rib, and he fashions her so to be a perfect match for him. There's something special about this creation. We know that we are created again in the image of God in Genesis 1.27. But when we look at verses 1.28, we also see that we were created above the rest of creation. There, Adam and Eve were to subdue the earth and have dominion, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, let me be very clear. God has called us to be good stewards of the earth. Don't flick your cigarette. I don't know why you have a cigarette anyway, but don't flick it out the window. I saw that just yesterday. I'm sitting there and the smoke filled. It looks, looks like some old, like, 70s or 60s movie, billowing with smoke. It opens up, smoke's coming out. I'm ready to go save them, and they just flick the cigarette out. I thought, maybe there's a fire inside, but they were just smoking. Don't do that. Take care. We are supposed to be good stewards of what God has given us. But listen, we are created above. We are to subdue. God created all those things for his glory, but also for our well-being, to supply because he's a good God for us. If you want to eat a fish, eat a fish. You could kill an animal to eat it. It's okay to do these things. That's why God has supplied these things for us. But there's a huge difference. In in, in Psalm 19, basically says the heavens and the essence there is that the heavens and the earth are declaring the glory of God. Everywhere you look declares the glory of God, shows you how great and mighty and awesome he is. But only you and I, according to Genesis chapter 1, can bear the image of God. And Satan wants to destroy it. Now, here we see that it, we're not really told how this man became demon-possessed. I'm, I'm going to touch on that maybe just a, a little bit later. But, but we're not told. But we are given specific uh, results, uh, the destructive results of, and evidence of, 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 of the destructive power of Satan in his life. What we find is he's trying to destroy everything. And this man lost the fellowship with his friends and family. That's what sin does. He lost his decency by running around naked. He lost his self-control by living like a wild animal. He lost his peace, as indicated by his screams in the day and the night, and he lost his purpose to glorify God and to bear his image. And so I I imagine what some of you are probably thinking, some of you are thinking, okay, Brother Mike, what what are you saying? Are you saying that all lost people are just like this demoniac, just like this naked, screaming, life taking kind of a a, a miserable human being? Are you saying that every person apart from salvation is like this man? Is that what you're saying? All those people out there and the people in here who don't know Jesus, they're like these people? And what I would say is, no. And yes. No in this fact. No in the fact that not all lost people are demon-possessed. Some I've wondered about. I've Met some deacons sometimes that I worked with. I wondered, you know, if there was maybe some demon possession there. Not really quite sure. But let me tell you you this, that that not all, I'm, I'm not saying that at all. Well, Brother Mike, and I'm also not saying that every lost person has or will acts upon every sinful desire and impulse to the point of madness and self-destruction. No, I'm not saying that every person is, is awful as awful they, as they could be. Uh, not Everybody is physically taking the life of other people or shooting people or doing all of these things. So no, I'm not saying that we're exactly like this man, but I am saying in some ways we are exactly like this man. In other ways. How is that? Well, number one, we are all hated by Satan, and Satan is an enemy who is seeking to destroy you. You need to understand that. You need to understand the gravity of that. In First Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He wants to destroy them and turn them into nothing more than a bubbling animal. That's what he wants to do. I'm also saying that every lost person is exactly like this man in this, as though, is, is even though every person may not have acted on every impulse of sin that they might have, that their hearts and my heart before Jesus saved me was just as wicked and saturated in sin as this man that we're reading about right here. We could act more sinfully, but we could not be more sinful. Sin has saturated every single aspect of your nature, your mind, your heart, your thoughts, your actions. It's all in there. We were born underneath the curse of sin. We were born sinners. We sin because we are sinners. It comes naturally to us. And there's a third thing that is the same, and that is this, is that each and every one of us are exactly like this man, and the fact that before we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are as helpless as this man to rescue himself from the hands and the, and the destructive power of Satan. He couldn't, he couldn't deliver himself. He wanted to take his life to try to escape it. And I'm telling you right now, there's no way that you and I, by trying to be good people, or just trying harder, trying to work harder, that we can ultimately escape the hands and the bonds and the chains of the enemy, the devil. You simply can't do it. And so what we see here in the beginning of this chapter, we see uh, very clearly the power, uh, the, the destructive power of sin and Satan. Now notice, secondly, that's, First of all, the bad news, and praise God there's good news, and here's the good news is the saving power of Jesus. The saving power of Jesus, amen? Let me just say it again. The saving power of Jesus. Bad news, good news, the saving power of Jesus. Now, now let, me, let me just kind of set this up, this next section for you, verses 6 through 13. Uh, what's going to happen is Jesus is about to go to blows with this demon-possessed man. All right. Uh, well, more, more specifically with the demons. So he's, there's about to be a battle. Okay. And they're going to get together and they're about to scrap. Now, what I, I mentioned earlier in the beginning that what Mark's doing is he's painting this picture and he's giving all these details. Here's why this is a very black painting. He is letting us know and giving us details throughout this whole thing to let us know how bleak this situation is. He wants us to walk away and go, whoa. This is an impossible situation that this man finds himself in and an impossible situation in battle that Jesus finds himself in. That's what Mark is trying to paint here, all right, in verses 6 through 13. And we should have gotten a hint of this uh, when we saw the storm. Remember back, Jesus, disciples, Jesus sleeping. They're moving across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus sleeping. All of a sudden, this huge storm comes. Remember? Remember, they're fearing. Jesus gets up. And he stills the storm, he calms the storm, right? Well, the Bible says that he rebuked it. Now, I think there's a hint there because the word rebuke is the same Greek word that is used in the other parts of Mark. And every other time that he uses that word rebuke, it's usually used in the aspect of rebuking a satanic power, a, a, a demon, a demon for a demonic force. And so, what I believe is, is as they're traveling across the sea, what's ultimately happened is. Satan and the demons, they are already putting up a fight. They don't want Jesus here. This is their home turf. This is their place. This is their home court. They don't want Jesus coming, so they fling a storm to keep him from coming to the other side. We see a hint there. But we also see a hint in the very land in which he was coming to. The land that he was coming to was what? Uh, Was it the holy land? No, it was a Gentile land. It was filled with unclean people, at least from a Jewish perspective people that were rebellious towards god wanted nothing to do with god we see it as well with the demon spirits here's a man he's filled with an unclean spirit the scriptures say but it's not just one it's tons of demon spirits the ver- in, in verse 9 uh jesus asked him he says and jesus asked him what is your name and he replied my name is legion for we are many the word legion literally uh, describes a large regiment of men in, in the Roman army, numbering approximately 6,000. So he's not coming up against just one demonic force, but thousands of demonic forces. And if that wasn't bad enough, where's this whole thing taking place? In, amongst tombs, amongst dead people. And the word of God teaches very clearly in the Old Testament law, in Numbers chapter 19, verses 11 through 14, that if a man even comes into contact with these things, he becomes unclean. And then if this wasn't bad enough, of course, what are they surrounded by? 2,000 pigs, right? And for the Jew, there was no animal more despicable and unclean than what? Than, 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 than pigs, and there's 2,000 of them, right, right? Right surrounding them. And the scripture in the Old Testament law, again, in Leviticus chapter 11 and 14, tells you you're not allowed to eat them, and you're not even allowed to touch them. You know, they have any part of the So Do you see what Mark's doing here? He's giving all these details because one after another after another. Listen, dark place, dark storm, trying to keep you away. Dark place, dark people, unclean people, unclean tombs, unclean pigs, unclean spirits. And this is what Jesus is about to face. Now listen, the disciples know that Jesus has the power to cast out demons because he's already done it. Back in Mark chapter 1, In in verses 21 through 28, Jesus delivered a man from a demon there. But there's a difference. Where were they? They were on his home court. They were in the holy land. Got that? Can't be any more home court than that for Jesus. Right? And and what did he do? Was he taking on a myriad of uh, a, a, a legion of demons? No, just one demon. And where were they? They were in, were they, were they around a bunch of tombs in a pagan land? No, they were in a synagogue on the Sabbath day surrounded by God fearing people, right? So, so, this is a good environment to cast out a demon. If you ever want to cast one out, that's a perfect place to be able to do it. So, they know that Jesus has the power under perfect circumstances and in pretty bright places to be able to do this kind of work and to be able to save somebody. But the question is, can Jesus do it in, well, there's an, an ideal when the, when, when, when the circumstances are not ideal. Can he do it in dark places? In fact, can he do it in even the darkest places? Can he save someone in the midst of that kind of darkness? Can he pull them out of there? Well, let's see what the scriptures say in verse 6. Verse 6 says, and when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran. Now, Stop right there. Don't look any further. says that he ran. Okay, it's not up there. All right, he ran. Well, what is he doing? Well, the intention in the verb tense makes it sound like he's going to go and whoop whoop somebody. Is what it sounds like to me. He's coming out, and what he would do with anybody else, if you were like, hey, let's go get a picnic, honey. That looks good. This man would see you come and clobber you, okay? Well, he has the same intention for Jesus. He runs down. He's, he's most likely screaming. He comes down to, to lay blows on Jesus. And what does the Bible say? The Bible says again in verse 6 that he ran and he fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? He says, I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. These guys are professional tormentors. Nobody can bind them. Nobody can get rid of them. That's all they love to do. And yet they're sitting there and now they're calling for mercy for Jesus to not torment them. Literally, Luke tells us to cast them into the abyss, to cast them in hell. Don't cast us there, they say. And he says, for he was saying to them, come out of the man and you unclean spirit. Then look at verse 10. And he begged him earnestly. Now they're begging Jesus, right? Not to send them out of the country. He says, now, uh, why? They liked it there. It's the only reason I know. Now, a great herd of pigs were feeding there on the hillside. And they again begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. They couldn't do anything without his permission. And the unclean spirits came out. And they entered the pigs in the herd, and the number of about 2,000 rushed down the steep bank into the sea, and they drowned into the sea. I don't know about you, but I can't help but to read this and just think, wow, this is the most anticlimactic movie I've ever seen, right? Because Mark has duped us. Do you kind of feel duped? Because here he is, and he is basically saying, dude, this is... This is the battle royale of all battles. This is the rumble in the jungle, all right? This is going to be the fight night of all fight nights, the fight of the century. And he's kind of out there, and he's kind of painting it, right? Right? He's, he's the one that's supposed to be letting us all know, hey, you need to come see this fight. It's going to be Jesus against the greatest, biggest, darkest, horrible force you can imagine. Jesus isn't even playing at home. He's on the visitor's home court. It is doom. It is gloom. It is despair. The bell rings. He comes out to fight. And, and, this, is, and this, is, this is what happens. He falls down. And and I'm sitting there going, you know, I was kind of expecting ten rounds. I'm kind of expecting Jesus at least work up a sweat, right? That Jesus is sitting there, and when Jesus comes up, he's black and blue a little bit. Maybe there's some tense moments where we don't know if Jesus is going to get taken by these 6,000 demons or not, and we're sitting back. But that's not it at all. The bell rings, he runs at Jesus, and he falls. Instead of falling on him, he falls at his feet, begging and pleading in full submission, asking permission for all that he does, crying out in anguish not to be tormented. And why does he fall? Jesus didn't swing at him. Jesus doesn't even speak to him. He falls because he's in the presence of the Most High. He just falls. He's in the presence of the Most High God. Jesus doesn't have to do anything. It's not as though Jesus has to fight the forces. I hear people say, that oh, there's going to be this great battle at the end times, and there is. We read about that. But it's going to be, and then God comes back, and there's just going to be this tremendous battle. But don't think of it as this long period of Jesus, you know, brave and kind of, you know, getting hit by things and swinging a sword. Jesus comes, and it's over. And it's over. I wanna tell you something, just very quickly. Do you know what my job as a preacher is for you? Every week, it's not to give you five points to a better you, or three points to parenting, or six steps to stop drinking. It's for me to exalt and to give you a picture of the glorious savior, Jesus Christ. That's what it is, why? Because when we grasp him and we understand his power, That's what builds our faith. And so, what he's telling us here is this. He's telling us very quickly, he's, he's telling us that Jesus has the power over the darkest forces and the darkest places. Where is your dark place? I had to stop and think just a little bit about our country. I'm going to preach a message on this next week, getting away from our study a little bit, just talk about the election a little bit. That should be exciting, right? Don't bring your campaign things, but next week, just going to talk a little bit about that before I go on vacation and you can't get a hold of me. All right, that's what I'm doing, and so I'm planning it. Okay, all right, so that's what we're going to be doing. So here, I think about our country, it's becoming an increasingly dark place. Look, look, it's looking gloomy in a lot of ways. And I'll talk about this, especially with some of the platforms that some of the parties are running on. They're running on a platform of killing children, right? And so we're going to be talking about that this is a gloomy place. But you know what we need? We need Jesus to show up. just need God to show up. Jesus, it looks bleak. But I don't need to buy a bunker. I don't need to hide in it. Don't need to do all those kind of things. Jesus is far more powerful and Jesus is in control. I was thinking about Julie Peterson, one of our young ladies who's been raised up. She's on the mission field. She's in a dark place in South Asia. She lives in a place that every single day and for hundreds and even thousands of years, they have been worshiping false gods. We know there is no false god. So what are they worshiping? They're worshiping demons. Every day they come and they bring their little food bowl to their demon into their little temple and they go, here's your food. Let me protect you and everything. I don't know about you, but I need a God to protect me, not me protect him. And he comes, and he does these things, and and I'm sitting there, and there's really no churches, and there's none of this, you know, grouping, and there she is in this very dark, wicked, demonic place. And you sit there and go, that could be overwhelming. God, can you even save these people? Mark goes, absolutely. Maybe you're sitting here, and you know the people, and you have friends, and you have family, and maybe it's even the person sitting next to you right now and you're thinking, and this is what we will say. I've heard this time and time again as people talking talk with me. I, I need to hurry through this. He, he says to me, he says, he says, Brother Mike, um, you don't understand my wife. You don't understand my uncle. You don't understand my husband. And I say, and I mean this in love and not in a demeaning way, you don't know Jesus. He's far more powerful than the darkest heart and the darkest mind. And when he shows up, demons flee. So we see a third thing. Third thing we see, and I'll finish very quickly. Y'all still with me? Last thing here, the, the surpassing power of grace. Surpassing power of grace. If this man had never received anything but him just to be delivered from, just to be saved from the stronghold and the destructive power of Satan, he would have received more than he ever deserved, right? I mean, it wasn't though he was looking for Jesus. It wasn't as though he was deserving of Jesus. He got into this particular situation by himself. How was he demon-possessed? We don't know. But let me tell you how it normally works. A person just continually giving in to the lordship of Satan, and he's sitting there going. Satan goes, do this. Okay, I'll do this. I'll do this. I'll do this. Finally, he gets a stronghold in this guy's life. This guy has been running from God from everything that he poss- with everything he possibly can, running away from Him. And so, what happens is Jesus grants him grace by saving him. But notice this: there's another type of grace here—not only saving grace, but a transforming, changing grace. Listen to the scriptures of verse fourteen. The herdsmen fled, and they told it to the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to see, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the man who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Isn't it amazing? Whenever Jesus stills the storm, whether by the sea or the storm that was raging in the man, when people see the power of God and the evidence of Jesus, it's not high-fiving, hey, knuckle punch. It's always they fear. And what's amazing about this man is Jesus comes and At this point, this legion, this man with a legion, naked, cutting himself, screaming at people, violent to self, violent to other people. Now he's sitting clothed in his right mind. Let me tell you what salvation looks like. This is what it looks like. People try, listen, one of the most demonic, false teachings anywhere that has messed up more people's minds and is sealing people's, and, and, and encouraging people's train to hell is this teaching. Sometimes you get saved, and later on in life, you make God Lord of your life. That's false. The Bible says simply this, is we believe in lordship salvation. We believe if you come, you can't believe apart from repentance, you must repent and believe, which means that you believe in the fullness of what Jesus Christ did on the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection, that he died to pay for your sin debt. But then you turn and repent from your own sin and you follow Jesus Christ in faith. That's exactly what he does. Notice at the very end of verse, uh, in verse 18. And as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him, that he might be with him. Now notice this, at first, and we know that they're demons speaking, but at first he doesn't want to leave the land. Jesus changes him, what does he do? He doesn't want to be around the corruption. He doesn't want to be around the sin. He doesn't want to be around where he was previously comfortable anymore. What does he want to do? He says, I want to go outside of here. I want to be with you. I want to follow you, Jesus. And let me tell you this, guys. The same power that Jesus Christ, and understand this, has to save you. He has the same power to continue to change you and to transform you. There's nothing in your life, whether you're hooked to pornography or drugs or fear or pride, there's no dark place in your heart that He can't save you and change you. Cry out to Him. Cry out to Him in faith. Now, there's a second type of faith here, and I'll close here very quickly there's a pursuing grace. A pursuing grace did you notice the response the these folks fear and then in verse 17 it says and they began uh excuse me verse 16 and those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs and they began to beg jesus to depart one man says don't leave jesus the other one says get out of here jesus leave here jesus right and so jesus implies he gets in the boat and he's walking away here's the son of god he's come to save them and to bring light into a lost and dying world guess what the darkness doesn't like light and so what jesus has done is he's just destroyed their occupation do you know how much money this is going to ultimately cost them jesus we would rather we're what's more important to us is our occupation and our money and our well-being our physical well-being than it is anything that you could do here get out of here now good thing i'm not jesus you with me all right, you don't want me around here? I'm out of here. You know, give him the little thing, give him the hand, walk away. You don't want any part of me? I'm out of here. This is what Jesus does. He gets in the boat and he leaves. The man comes to him and he says, listen, I want to go with you. Verse 19, here's the grace. And he did not permit him, said, uh, and he said, but he said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And now he had mercy on you. And he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. Instead of Jesus getting the boat and never returning, he left a witness. That's pursuing grace. They reject the grace. Jesus says, I'm gonna leave a witness and they're gonna to continue to tell you about me and continue to show like what incredible grace that is. Now, I don't know about you. I know some of you were saved when you were very little. But I know some of you say maybe in a little bit older in life you might be able to get this a little bit more. How many times that God graciously began to reveal himself to you? How many times you heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and you said, no, I'd rather rather keep my pigs. I want my pigs. I want my way of life. I I don't want you, Jesus. I don't want anything to do with you, Jesus. And you're pushing them off and you're pushing them off and you're pushing them off. But what does Jesus do? Pursuing grace. He just keeps coming back. And he's got a witness and he keeps telling you the goodness and if you've been doing that today, here is another pursuing grace in the form of this preacher who doesn't know a whole lot, but he knows this. Let me tell you this, what Jesus has done for me, he's forgiven me, a sinner, he saved me by his grace, I don't deserve it. He called me and he drew me and he saved me and he changed me. You now, here's a wonderful thing. We keep trying to promote for all of us not to have these mass revivals in our church, and I'm not completely against those. Those can happen, but it was never intended primarily to happen that way. God had intended for each and every one of us to take the responsibility to open up our mouths and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with our neighbors, friends, as we're going about. We share and proclaim the gospel. You say, Brother Mike, I don't know what to do. Just follow Jesus' instructions. Just tell them all that the Lord has done for you. What has he done for you? He saved me. Saved you from what? From my sin. From self. From hell. From destruction. From the bonds and the chains of sin. From the hands and the bondage of Satan. He made me a child of God. He adopted me as his own. And now he has prepared a place for me and He's indwelt me with His Spirit, and now I'm becoming more like Him each and every day, and He's given me eternal life, and it will give me eternal rewards. But most of all, He's given me Jesus. Share that. Do you know Jesus? Do you know this Jesus? Two responses. Either one, you don't know Him, in the sense that you've never met Him, you've never come to faith in Him. Or number two, you don't know this Jesus. You know saving grace but still in your life, things are too dark, too, too gloomy. People are too lost. Nobody is too lost. No darkness is too great. He is bigger. He is stronger. He is greater. He is able. Jesus, we thank you and we praise you, God, for this morning. God, I thank you for the patience of our gracious people to allow me to go over just a little bit. But now is the time, God, to do business with you. God, any of those who are here this morning who don't know you, I pray that they will bend a knee in repentance and come in faith. God, I pray that if it's not,